The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles and open them to the first or second, rather, of the five books of the Pentateuch. That would be the book of Exodus. And this is the second book of the law. Our text verses this evening are Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. I mentioned this morning I've been trying to preach this message for quite some time. I look back at the original date, and it was first week of December that I was supposed to preach this, but things happened in the intervening time. So we finally come to to this message. You see it's a part number two, which means part number one was quite a while ago, and I'm not sure you'll remember too much of that. So we're going to review just a little bit of that as we get started uh, tonight. Uh, For more than a year, we have been in a study of Old Testament sacrifices and the work of Israel's high priest in making those sacrifices. And now our study has expanded, and actually we're traveling backwards to get the very beginning of tabernacle worship and learn the system and what, that, what it's all about. And it begins here in Exodus chapter 25. Now, the establishment of Israel's worship system was also the establishment at the, of the nation. Uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, the people waited for Moses to come down from the mount, and they would hear the result of Moses meeting with God And the result of that meeting was the Ten Commandments and then another complete set of laws that would govern the Old Testament worship. There was no freedom of religion in Israel. Uh, The government and religion were the same. It was theocratic. That is, they were ruled by God. Moses was the mediator between God and the people. That is, he was the mediator of the civil government. And the high priest was the one who mediated Uh, with God in the religious ordinances. And the people would serve God. God demanded they would serve him in only one way, and that was God's way. There wasn't anything else permitted. In fact, additions or changes to worship were often punishable by death. Israel's laws given by God were intended to make them a homogenous people. So there was no diversity that was tolerated, no diversity of opinions, no tolerance of other opinions. And I know that doesn't sit very well with with modern concepts of government or religion, but this is what you get when the supreme ruler of all is perfect. All the imperfections come from men and their opinions, and why should God tolerate anything that's short of perfection? So God's rule is best, tolerance was a death wish, diversity of opinions corrupt, because there's no opinion but God's that matters. And the same is true today. Only God's opinion matters. Uh, We can hear a lot of different opinions, what people think about this and about that, and think about the Bible, but when it comes down to it, only God's opinion matters. But the problem is, today we, we don't have the latitude, we don't even have a command that we are to have an exclusive system. At least we can't do that in government because we don't have a theocratic theocratic kingdom as Israel had. God spoke to those people. God spoke and made his presence known in types and figures and the tabernacle and the temple. But you know what happens if our leaders today claim that they get information directly from God. 
you could ask our vice president, Mike Pence, how that works out. If you ever say that God told you to do something or you get information from God. But I'll say this, that in the church, diversity of doctrinal opinions must be kept at a minimum. And we do have some. There are some diversities of opinion because there is none of us that, that is perfect in our interpretation of the word. Uh, we are a diverse people. The church in the New Testament is supposed to be diverse in its people, but we are not to tolerate all of the differences of opinion. We have a guidebook that's New Testament practice. It's the beliefs for the church. And in the perfect word of God, uh, we find that we are to depend upon faithful pastors and teachers to give us the word, and then we hold them accountable for the truth. Well, God's government and the Doctrines of the church are static. We have only one head, that is Christ. We tolerate no faith, no doctrine, no ordinances, no rituals, no opinions, but God's opinions. But just by way of explanation, we know as we look across the religious landscape in the United States, across the world, that there are many, many different denominations because there are differences of opinion about the scripture. All of them can't be right. They all can't be right. And even on minor points, we might say, well, we may not be exactly right on every issue that we, that we discuss. But when there are, there are incorrect doctrines that affect salvation, that, that are against very clearly revealed principles in the Word and, and uh, uh, for the New Testament church, we're not to ignore those differences and we're not to tolerate those differences of opinion. Because there are differences that damage the faith and when the faith is damaged, that determines the destiny of souls. And so we're commanded to separate from those who teach false doctrine. Paul, Paul says, or he goes as far as to say, let those who pervert the gospel of Christ be cursed. The word he used was anathema. That means separated, be cut off from God. Several weeks ago, I was in a, I was in a Santa, Santa Rosa restaurant. I was waiting in line for a food order. Kind of gives you a hint what kind of food I was eating, but I was uh, standing in line waiting for a food order, and there was a man in front of me, and we struck up a conversation, and I, I learned that this man was a minister. And so I asked him, where is your church? And he hesitated for just a moment, and he said, well, we're a church without walls. And I said, well, that's very interesting. Where are you located? And he said, no, no, you don't really understand. We literally don't have walls. We don't have a place to worship. We are everywhere. And we minister to everybody. But I'm afraid that man had a very mixed up understanding of the church. Because the church in the New Testament is not everywhere. And it's not everybody. It is true that you don't need a building to have a church. But you do need an assembly of people. You've got to have people that are of like mind. That are covenanted together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to have that. And you also have a church that has ordinances, the church has baptism, the church has the Lord's Supper, the church has defined doctrine, it has pastors and teachers and deacons. The church, according to 2 Timothy, is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so the church is not mystical, the church is not ethereal, the church is not out there blowing in the wind. The church is an assembly of people. That's what the word means. Well, we find the prototype for the church in the Old Testament. It's in the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. That's not to say tabernacle and temple and church are all the same thing because they're not. 
But the example that we find in the Old Testament through tabernacle and temple is that there is a foundation for doctrine and for reverence for the holy God and there must be strict compliance to his ways and his ways alone. Well, what we're examining is the command to build the tabernacle in Exodus 25. This is the foundation of worship and this would be Israel's system for the next 1500 years until Christ came to establish the church. So this is Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses received the instructions on the mount. Now, first, Moses was commanded to assemble the multitude. So we begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus 25. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. In verse number 8, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary where I may dwell with them. So God says, make me a, a sanctuary. But God didn't stop there. There was a place that they would build and they would meet with God. And this was designed by God in all of its finest details. So the first part of this that we considered in the last message was the God of design. That proper worship is by God's design. We're not free to improvise our worship. We're not free to insert our opinions into it. God designs. God wants us to stick to his design because his designs always have very specific purposes. Now, in the tabernacle, the purpose of everything that God had Moses to make and the people to make was to show the truth of his redemptive plan. His plan would be worked out through the work of Jesus Christ and the tabernacle was, was built to accentuate all of these details of the person of Christ and how that he is every way suitable to be the perfect sacrifice that God required. God gave them a blueprint. The scriptures term it a pattern. And the pattern is after the heavenly sanctuary. We find that out by reading the book of Hebrews. It's a pattern after the heavenly sanctuary, the very place that God dwells. So God dwelling with man on earth is, according to verse number 8, the pattern of the way that he dwells in heaven. Now the plan then was to give Moses uh, this, this, this blueprint for the tabernacle. He followed that plan in every precise detail. Now the next chapter of Exodus, going on to the end of the book and then reading on into Leviticus, are more of the details of the plans of every aspect of tabernacle worship. Well, going on from there, we left off in the last message with this, with this second point, and that is the gifts of the people. In verse number 2, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering. So everything that was in the tabernacle was to be supplied by the people. Here in these verses, we find a list of materials they were to gather. 
And if you just picked up the Bible and you don't have very much understanding of the background of all of this, and perhaps the only thing that you know is that Israel were, had been in slavery, that Israel was in Egypt, uh, and they were there for more than 200 years, well, you would think when you read this and what God asked, you'd say, well, that's all fantasy. You, you would think the Bible uh, couldn't possibly be true. They would never have these things. And you can be sure that's a point that's been raised. This is one of the objections that's brought against the story in the Word of God, that these things can't possibly have happened. And then even if you didn't know about the slavery part of it, this listing in verses 3 through 7 would be very difficult to obtain, even for the very rich. So how was it that these people accumulated all these expensive materials that were required? Well, we talked about that. We looked at the background of how they got all these things. So how were they able to give this? So we looked at the ability to give. These are people that aren't rich. They aren't middle class. They were slaves. 200 years of slavery impoverished them. They had flocks and herds. That's all that they had that, that kept them alive. But the materials on this list was not in their possession until just a few weeks before Sinai. Now, if God had asked for all of this three months prior, it would have been impossible. If God said to Israel, build me a house, and I want you to build the finest house, and I want it to have all gold furnishings, I want it to have rich tapestries, they would begin to moan. And they would say, God, how could you expect this from us? There's no way that we can do this. But that was three months ago. Now, here they are in the wilderness. They're removed from Egypt. And it wasn't even a moment's hesitation when God said, bring these to me, that they said, all right, we've got that. We'll bring that. We'll bring this offering. We'll bring everything that you have commanded. Well, how could they? Because God had already planned for it. God had already taken care of it. When Israel left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. Oh, they didn't beat it out of them. They didn't beat the Egyptians to death to get this stuff from them. They didn't steal it from them. In fact, in God's providence, the Egyptians were happy to give it to them. And they gave it in copious amounts. God said, the Egyptians will favor you. And he meant, they'll gladly give you anything you want just to have you gone. Because they don't want any more plagues to fall on them. Now the first, uh, the plague of the firstborn, that last plague, that was a devastating one. Israel didn't need to worry about beating Egyptians down. God did it. So the Egyptians cried uncle. They gave up and they gave in. And when Israel came and says, hey, we need some gold. We need silver. We need brass. We need jewels. We need fine linens. We, we need expensively dyed fabrics. Well, the Egyptians just opened up all the storehouses and said, there it is. Take anything that you want. So now, here is Israel in the desert. They're at the mountain. And everything that was required is in their possession because God provided. That is the way that God plans. And when God commanded, they didn't hoard it. They didn't hold on to it. They brought it with willing hearts. Now, friends, that teaches that God will never ask more than we can give. And when he asks, he knows what you have already. He knows where you will get what he asks. God is not ignorant, so he's not going to tell you to do what he does, doesn't enable you to do. So the key here of all of this, how do they do this, is faith. That when God asks, God always supplies whenever you trust him to give what he asks. 
The Bible tells us that God gives the power to get wealth. There's not one penny that you have that you would have if God didn't send every good and perfect gift down from above. And so when he says to give, who who are you to say to God, I can't, or for you to withhold it? God gives and God takes away. We need to very clearly remember that and understand it, that God can ask you for a pound of gold or he might just forcibly take a pound of flesh, depending on how you respond. So God has this endless supply. When he asks, don't ever be afraid to give because God can fill you up over and over and over again. The, the, the Israelites would never have expected that this would happen. They would be happy to get out of, out of Egypt with just the, the skin of their teeth, with just barely their lives. But God enriched them before he sent them out of Egypt. Now, let's notice next the attitude in giving. God said, bring the offering willingly. If your heart tells you to give and you want to give, then bring an offering. Well, what is the attitude of those that love the Lord God? Well, we sing it in one of our songs. It says, I'm forever grateful to you. I'm forever grateful for the cross. I'm forever grateful to you, for you came to seek and save the lost. Do you wonder why God asked to take an offering of those that are willing? Why were they willing? Why would God ask an offering of those that are willing? I mean, isn't that a surefire recipe to get far less than what's actually needed? Well, I can tell you why. Because the deliverance from Egypt would make them grateful. Now, you think for just a moment about it. Is it a dangerous method to ask newly enriched slaves to give up what they'd never seen before? They never had gold. They never had fine clothes. They were poor. Their fathers were poor. Their ancestors going back 200 years were poor. They were generationally poor. And now they've just been asked to give up all of their heart's desire. Things they've never seen before. They're asked to give it up. Why would they give that up? You know, that's a very good question. Human nature would say, no, no, you ought not to give that up. Human nature says you need to keep that because you're never going to have this opportunity again. Why surrender everything that God asks and then be left with nothing? But that's not the problem here. God knew what the response would be. They will gladly give because of gratitude. They'll be happy to give and they'll give even more than's required. Now, we see their hearts in the response of giving. If you'll turn over uh, to chapter 35 for just a minute, we'll see how they brought this offering to the Lord. And, and this is just a really good place for us to read because this is another example of God's infinite wisdom. Exodus 35, beginning in verse number 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, and for all his service, and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets, and earrings, and rings, and tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord." And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. 
Everyone that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought the Lord's offering. And every man with whom was found shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. And all the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. And the rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. And spice and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. Isn't that amazing? Everything that God asked in that list of chapter 25, the people had and they brought. They yielded up all the treasures of expensive garments, the jewels and the precious metals. And if you remember, we had a discussion about the garments the last time. Garments that are dyed with rare dyes. So what they did was they unraveled the threads of blue and purple and scarlet and they rewove them into the coverings and curtains and priestly robes. They brought precious jewels for the breastplate. They brought gold to make the cherubs and gold to cover wooden boxes and boards. Why did they do that? It's the attitude. It's the attitude of gratefulness. Verse 21 says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, and for all his service, and for the holy garments. Now there is the key to it. Their hearts were stirred, and their spirits made them willing. Might I stop there and elaborate for just a minute? Their hearts were stirred. And I would suggest to you that divine gratitude will stir your heart. There was no hope to be delivered. For 200 years they were in bondage. Their fathers died as slaves. They were sure all of their lives that they would die as slaves. But then God raised up Moses. God raised a deliverer. He empowered him with this ability to lead them out. Oh yes, now, when they heard about it, they murmured at first. They weren't weren't sure that it could happen. They didn't yet understand the power of God. And truly, things got worse before they got better. They came to the Red Sea and they doubted. But then they saw God part the sea. They came to the bitter waters of Merah and they began to grumble again. They thirsted, but then God made the waters sweet. They were hungry, they were starving. And then God sent down manna and quail after Sinai. After these miracles from God, their hearts swelled with gratitude. They were excited. Now our God has asked us to supply a sanctuary for Him, a place to meet with us. And these people were excited about that. And they said, there is nothing that we're going to withhold from our God. Folks, that's what you call gratitude. And what does it bring to the mind of the Christian? That it must be that we have undiluted gratitude for the cross of Jesus Christ. That we are forever grateful for the cross. That we are forever grateful for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Because we were hopelessly lost. We were enslaved to sin. We couldn't escape. But then Christ came to seek and save the lost. And what he did was to take us out from under our taskmaster. That taskmaster was sin. It was Satan. Satan ruins the soul. But then came Christ. And he translated us into the kingdom of righteousness and made us heirs of his eternal riches. So now we have more than heart can desire. 
So what does God say to the person who has experienced all of that? And yet when God says, give, give what I require, and they don't give, what does God say to that person? Ungrateful. Ungrateful. There's a word for it. Ingrate. Ungrateful. You are ingrates. Well, it should work in the church as it did in the tabernacle. We should be grateful for the bountiful grace of God. But there are some who aren't. They won't give. If they do, it's the obligation that forced them, not because they love, not because they love God. God doesn't ask for all of our wealth. He asks for 10%. That's peanuts. That's not gold. But you would think that he asked something unreasonable. He asked the impossible. I mean, he's the one who gave us the ten-tenths in the first place. And yet when he says, give back a tenth, we say, can't do that. Well, we know that Israel wasn't always faithful to give. Eventually, we get all the way towards the end of the Old Testament, and there you find Israel robbed God. That's what God called it. He said, you don't give to me, you have robbed me. If you don't give what God requires, you rob him. Shame, shame on those who steal from God. Now let's look at this again. God said bring an offering. Those whose hearts are stirred and willing to give. This is what God said. Those whose hearts are stirred, those willing to give, bring an offering. He said those whose spirits make them willing. Their spirits make them willing. Now right there the free willers say, oh, we found a text verse now. Oh, yes, there is free will. Well, true, yes, we do believe in free will. But have you noticed the ones that are willing? It's those who have been enriched by God's grace. It's those who have been touched by God's grace. These aren't the same slaves in Egypt. These are people that have been touched by mercy and grace. God said, I will put a new spirit in you. I will give you a new heart. Now, some interpret that in Ezekiel to mean that God would put the Holy Spirit in them, and I do think there's an application for that. But I think it's more accurate to say that God puts a new spirit in us in this way, that God puts a new spirit in man, a renewed spirit, a regenerated spirit, a spirit that has new desires with ability to respond to God. This is not that dead spirit of sin. It's a new spirit of life. It's capable of now choosing to obey God when before it never was. The psalmist said, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So the grateful heart is the one touched by the power of God. The desires of that heart are changed. And so when God said, Take an offering of the willing, then he knew there wouldn't be any trouble because they would be willing. By his power, they would be willing. Well, God never depends on a depraved heart to do anything. God never asks a depraved heart to give. He knows they're not willing. And so you might ask yourself, am I willing? And if you're not willing, then why aren't you willing? A new spirit that's in you makes you willing. So if you're not willing, do the math. Now, the list of materials that are asked for are formidable. It was expensive. God supplied it with them, or to them only recently. And yet, the people were willing to give it up. With grateful hearts, with stirred hearts, they came and they gave. Family after family came and gave. Tent after tent, cart after cart. They emptied everything until all these treasures had accumulated. Well, what happened then? Well, we noticed, thirdly, the abundance of giving. 
Now, if you'll turn to the 36th chapter, we see the exuberant response when Moses called for the giving. Exodus 36, verse number 5. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. Now next, I, I have a picture for you that shows the, the people bringing their gifts, and they kept on bringing, and they kept on bringing, they kept on bringing, and finally Moses said, stop bringing. There's enough. We have enough. You can stop. Now, I've reminded you many times before that as good a Baptist as Moses was, he was a different sort. There is no Baptist preacher that ever said, it is enough, stop giving. Uh, if you bring it, we will spend it. I promise we will. So they gave and they gave until there was too much. And Moses says, it's enough now, you can stop. Well, the hard heads among us would say, okay, I, I see all of that. I see what you're saying. They had plenty to give. God made them rich. They had plenty to give. And so when they gave, they had plenty left over. But here's the thing they say. I don't have enough. I don't have as much as they did. I don't have enough. If I give to God, then there won't be anything left for me. Well, God has an answer for you too. God will supply what he asks. And you don't need to be in the middle of that supply chain. Is it possible that you can give more than you have? Well, evidently, it is, because we find an example in the Bible. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've been studying the church at Thessalonica on Sunday mornings. This was a church that was a joy to Paul. The ministry in their area was a refreshing one because of the people's incredible response to the grace of God. And let's just look here how they showed their gratitude for grace. Now, we looked at this scripture this morning, but today, in the morning service, we were looking at this from the aspect of love. Now we look at it from a different aspect, and that is the aspect of obedience. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, or we want you to know, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction... The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Now, what can we learn from this text? Well, what about this? You don't have to be rich to give. Most Christians are far from rich. The word says, not many mighty, not many noble, not many worldly wise are chosen to be Christians. In fact, the, the Christian, New Testament Christianity was, was a slave market. The pool was a slave market. Sixty percent of the Roman Empire was in slavery. And so that pool that they had to pull from to speak the gospel to, they're mostly slaves. But did that make a difference in giving? It did in Macedonia. That's the region of, region of Thessalonica and Philippi. Uh, and do you see what Paul said about those churches? These are poor people, he said. These are poor people that gave. And yet, he said, they gave out of their deep poverty. And then he adds in verse number 3, they gave beyond their power to give. By what power can you give more than you can give? Well, most people believe this means that the Macedonians went down deep 
And they gave out of the resources that they needed to sustain their lives. Now, you and I, when we're called on to give, we go check the savings account. And we give out of the leftovers from our paycheck. We go and we come and we give after the cable bill is paid. We, 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 um, we give after we've made the payment on the 65-inch TV. And then we give after we've made the car payment. And then the house payment. And after we've taken our vacation. And then we go check the 401k. And we see how high is the stock market today. Let's make sure that the math works. Then we write the check. In some churches, they swipe the card reader, get out their smartphone and scan the QR code, and, and then they give. Well, most believe that the Macedonians took their rent money, and they took their food money, they took their shoe money, they took their cable money, they took their donkey money, and they gave. And you know something? Paul didn't follow that up and say, well, sorry to say, they're all dead now. Because they starved to death. Oh, he didn't say that. Why? Because God rewards that kind of giving. God rewards the sacrifice of giving. God sustains us in this way. Now, none of them lacked any of the necessities of life. We don't read that in the Scriptures. No, God blessed His church and the people gave. We know what it costs to live. And yet we look around us and we see there aren't any members a Berean Baptist church that are starving. And you won't starve because God will give you what you need. You know, I'm often amazed at the offering reports. I don't know where all this money comes from. I don't know who gives. I don't want to know because I don't want to stand and preach a sermon like this with the thought that I'm directing it straight at some person. So I don't want to know which of you would let God's work suffer. You won't help pay the electric bill. You won't help pay the operating expenses of the church. I don't want to know. Because then that might make me look at you differently. So if I asked John or Kyle, well now I'd have to ask Dakota. I'd have to ask Dakota this. Tell me who gives. And tell me how much they give. Did you know there's not a word in the bylaws that says I can't know that information? There's not a word there that says, I shouldn't know that information. I just choose not to know it. But I've been around for several years. I was a church consultant. One of my jobs was to evaluate church giving and spending to show how that churches could improve their financial condition. And this isn't a secret to anybody, I don't think. Most people know that 20% of the people in the church give about 80% of the money. I think probably Berean beats that statistic, but I don't know. But I do know, out of that 20%, those are the most faithful people. And I, as I look at this congregation, I would say probably that 20% is right here tonight because that's the way that it usually works. I know that God blesses His people. And I also know there are many Christians that struggle because they don't trust God with giving. People that give may not be rich, but neither are they worried. Now, you, you could bargain with God like prosperity preachers do, and you won't give unless you have a solid guarantee of a new BMW or a nice house or a really cool apartment. But I don't think the Macedonians bargained for that. The Bible never says they got anything like that. It says they gave out of their deep poverty, and probably they stayed in deep poverty. Is that a problem? No. No. Because they were content to be in the grace of God. 
They were grateful for the grace of God. Their heart's desires were met because their heart's desires were changed. They were met because they were changed. Did that happen to you? Or is still your heart's desire, your greatest desire, is that the dollar bill that makes you happy? Well, if you can't be happy in your salvation in Christ, if that doesn't drive you, if that doesn't cause you to give, then keep all your stuff and keep all your anxieties too. The Word says, God says, my God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. And I hope that you found that out. You see, stewards of God know that everything that they have belongs to God. That, that's the reason that we're called stewards. All that we do in this world is mind God's resources. We move what God says to move from one place to another. We do it at His command. So be thankful that you are a steward of God. Always be thankful because what God did for you was to give you the very best that He had. He gave you the very best that He had. And that was Jesus Christ. And everything that we look at here in tabernacle worship points to the superiority of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that God ever gave the world. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be stewards of, of everything that you've given us and we would be faithful to use all of our resources in the way that we should. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our church in the past. Uh, our minds are just, we, we're just can't understand how, how this group of people could give what they give and uh, bring in the resources that, that they do, but we can only say they do because you gave it. And they're grateful for it. And we thank you, Lord, for that faithfulness to support the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for it to continue in this coming year. And Lord, make us the kind of servants you'd have us to be, willing servants, because of the grace of God in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org